You may be seated if you are not seated already. If you have a Bible, please open to the second letter of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Second Timothy chapter four verses one through eight. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from, the, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning's message is what is called a one-off. We know that phrase maybe in other contexts, but we pastors use them too. I have a good friend, Jeremy Reipel. I've talked about him, and some of you might remember Jeremy. When he lived out this way, he would preach for us on occasion when uh, I would need him to. Uh, and mind, give me a grace for a second here. My iPad will fall asleep if it gets too hot. So I'm going to shift over to here, at least for that, and I will maybe just walk around a little bit as uh, need be. Or I'll carry it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. You, you guys will be patient with me. Uh, so, so Jeremy, he, he pastors in, in the Detroit area now. And we'd message every Sunday and check in. And I typically know what he's preaching. He knows what I'm preaching. And so uh, that's one of the things when we're not in a series, uh, we'll communicate. Yeah, today's message is a one-off or, or something like that. And I, I call it that because we just finished Sermon on the Mount. We were in that for several months with the breaks we had for Christmas and other things. Uh, but today is a standalone, a one-off sermon, partly because finally this coming Friday, my sh- surgery is scheduled for my shoulder. I realized a week or two ago, uh, you all were probably thinking, man, Paul can move around after having surgery, like no problem. Uh, there was a mix-up with insurance, and so long story that I will keep very short uh, I got moved two weeks. So this coming Friday, May 7, is the surgery. So Dwayne McFeeders is going to, Lord willing, preach on uh, Mother's Day next week for me. Uh, and then in two weeks, the plan is to start a short five-week series in the book of Titus, which we're in Second Timothy today. Titus is the next letter. Often First and Second Timothy and Titus are, are lumped together and called the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to his... his uh, uh, Apprentice, Timothy, and Titus, who are left at these churches to do pastoral work, and that's kind of why they're, they're often called that. Uh, so that's coming in a couple of weeks. All of that, though, begs the question, why this passage? And I want to give you two reasons why today I want to share out of 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. First, 
I was reading this passage just a couple of weeks ago, and, and it had an impact on me as I, I read it. Uh, I was convicted, I was encouraged, I was challenged personally. Uh, and that might not surprise you. Um, as, as I read it, it's a very popular passage for preachers, right? Preach the word. Um, it's, it's probably in the top 10 of favorite passages that preachers have. Um, and, and it's probably in my top 10 for sure. Uh, but, but it struck me afresh just again in the last couple of weeks as I was reading through it. So there was firstly a nudge, I'll call it, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the second reason comes from a story attributed to G.K. Chesterton. So I've not read this to verify it. I've heard this stated a couple different times. Chesterton was a brilliant author uh, from about a century ago, and he was once asked, if you were marooned on a desert island and you could only have one book with you, what would it be? And of course, they probably expected he'd say the Bible, right? That's what a good Christian would say. Chesterton's answer was, I would like Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> Chesterton was brilliant, but he was also quite witty. And the essence of his answer is that if you find yourself in a desperate situation, like deserted on an island, you're not looking for a book just to be entertained by, right? You want a book that will help you get home, a book that will save you as it is. Well, I believe that we are in a desperate time, a desperate situation. And I don't say that like a some doomsday prophet. I mean, we've, we've been in desperate times forever, we as in humanity, as we live between the first advent of the Lord Jesus and we await the second advent, what we just got done singing about, okay, these are desperate times. And, and yet, in desperate times, God has been good to give us a book for desperate times, to give us a book that will help us get home, as it were, that will help save us. And if you're part of SOMA, you've heard me say it many times, the Bible is God's self-revelation. Like that, that really has to grab us. Uh, grab, grab us, excuse me. God's self-revelation. The God of the universe, the God who created this beautiful space we're in today, has revealed himself in a book. The people of Israel were known as a people of the book. God had given them the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. They were a people of the book. And the church, too, has become known as a people of the book. And we are in a desperate time. We've always been in a desperate time. We need that book that will help us get home, that will help us be saved. Now, I've read this too many times, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the first chapter, the sort of the introduction chapter, where Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about the Bible. And this is what she says. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you how you should, what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does contain some rules. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Now, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. I love that, partly because providentially this morning uh, in my early morning walk, kind of my routine these days is to get up and go for a 20 to 30 minute walk and I listen to the next set of verses, chapters in my reading plan. Today was David and Goliath. I love that. I was thinking even then, like how funny, like we think of David and how brave, and, and he was, don't get me wrong, but we, we read into that and make that story about uh, David being a hero. Back to Sally Lloyd-Jones here. 
The Bible does have some heroes in it, and if we all know David, though, uh, maybe as a young boy, <laughs> he was quite the hero, uh, but he, he messed up quite a lot. They, the people we often think of as heroes in the Bible, make some pretty big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away. In David's case, they commit adultery and murder and lie. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story, it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That last line. There are a lot of stories and a lot of teachings and a lot of heroes and scare quotes. uh, But they all tell one big story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. And so it is that we have 66 books, two testaments, giving us this grand story, this this self-revelation of God for us to help us. And ultimately, as it points to Jesus, to to show us who he was, what he's done, what we call the gospel, the the good news. So, back to my introduction here. The Holy Spirit nudged me a couple weeks ago with 2 Timothy 4. And then as I was reflecting on that, that Chesterton story, and I just was thinking, as we, as we leave Spring Hills in the patio that we were in gathering for four months in the afternoons, as we return to mornings, return here for now, and, and as again, we're kind of in between things, I, I want to be reminded, I want to remind you that we have this book. And, and so here's... Here's what today is. It's about the importance of this book, the importance of the Bible. Now, let's get into a little bit of context for the Apostle Paul and 2 Timothy, since we're just jumping in to chapter 4. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was chained, probably literally, uh, in prison. This is probably days from his execution. Most scholars believe 2 Timothy was the last letter he wrote, at least in terms of what we have in our Bibles. So think of 2 Timothy as his last will and testament. Not only for Timothy, who was in Ephesus, but for us. God preserved this this for us. The last writings we have by the Apostle Paul. And they they give us an encouragement to endure. That's kind of a big, quick snapshot of the whole message of that letter. But now then, specifically as we drill in to these eight verses I read, this morning we're going to hear Paul give us the importance of the Bible for two areas. And I I want to say these very specifically in this order. The importance of the Bible for life, number one, and ministry. The importance of the Bible for life and for ministry. And here's why I, I say it that way. Actually, the context is about ministry. He's writing again to his representative. Some, some call Timothy like the pastor of the church there. I don't think that's quite true. Paul's uh, plan, which he did all the time, was 
to go in and then there would be a plurality of elders or pastors appointed. So there was a team of elders, a plurality of elders. But as he gets things started, he would in some cases leave people like we'll learn about Titus in a few weeks. And here in Ephesus, he leaves Timothy. So Timothy's not the pastor, I don't think, as much as he's just Paul's representative. He's an apostolic representative who is pastoring, shepherding, leading, helping these elders and deacons and this church do things uh, as, as God would want, okay? So it's about ministry. Preach the word, be ready in season, reprove, rebuke. Like That gets obvious. You, you've probably picked up on that as I read it. So it is about the importance of the Bible for ministry, but I, that's secondary. I, I say that because maybe it, its immediate application is that, and it is. But I think too, too many uh, times, too often, maybe a lot of Christians kind of tune out on that. Like, oh, well, that's for pastors. That's for people going to seminary or people who are going to preach or, uh, you know, missionaries, vocational ministry people. But, you know, for, for me who goes to a job Monday through Friday, for me who stays home with the kids, for, for me kids who's a student, like, well, whatever. I don't need to worry about preaching the word. I don't need to, that, like, this doesn't apply to me. And maybe, maybe you kind of go there. I was thinking maybe it's like, you know, reading Proverbs 31, you know, which is about women, right? And, and the, the noble woman. Again, yes, there's some very specific things to this, this righteous woman in Proverbs 31, but there's application. And again, we need to apply it correctly and carefully. And, and I want to do that now back to this. And that, that's why I say, please listen. Don't, don't, don't think, well, that's, that doesn't apply to me. This is the importance of the Bible for life. And I'll try to nudge us in some applications. But yes, ministry too. For vocational elders like, like me, yes. For, for other leaders in the church, yes. This, this definitely speaks to those things. But, but, but for our application today, May the 2nd, 2021, for Soma Church, the importance of the Bible for life and ministry. Because life and ministry really ought to go together. Let me just say it like this. If you're a mom, and I'm just picking that, partly because Mother's Day is next week and thinking about moms, you have a ministry. It doesn't matter if you're not you know, paid and, and given a title minister or pastor. You have a ministry to your kids. Dads, if you're a dad, you have a ministry to your kids. You have a ministry where you live, where you work, where you go to school. We all have a ministry. We all have a ministry in our local church, but also where we are are living and where we are working, where we are spending right the majority of our hours awake and alive during the week. So life and ministry, they, they go together. Okay. God is speaking to us about the importance of the Bible for life and ministry in, in this passage. Now, let me kind of give us one more big kind of overview thing. This passage, these eight verses, it's built around a charge. That's what verse 1 is going to say. I charge you. Some translations say, I solemnly charge you. Okay, so the apostle has this charge that he's about to give. It's built around this one charge. And get this. There are nine, in eight verses, nine imperatives or commands. There are nine imperatives that, that make up this charge. And Paul kind of breaks that even down into sort of two sections. Verses 1 to 4 have five commands and then the reason for the, for the commands. And then we have in verses 5 to 8, the additional four commands and then a reason as well. Okay, and I'll point out those key words so you can see that. There's one charge that's made up of nine 
commands, nine imperatives, broken sort of in half with reasons after each set of commands. So I'll, I'll point that out. So here we go. Let's look just for a few minutes at the importance of the Bible for life and ministry. Verse 1. I charge you, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Boy, talk about a setup. Talk about the Apostle Paul wanting to heighten how important this charge is. He speaks of this charge coming for him as he's writing in prison, as being written and as being given in the presence of God. He's not just writing in an ordinary way. He, he wants Timothy and he wants us to hear this as coming from the very presence of God. The next phrase says, and of Christ Jesus, both the Father and the Son have a concern in this matter. Okay, again, it's a pretty important charge. And then speaking of Christ Jesus, he says, who is to judge the living and the dead. If you were with us last week, as we ended the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus brings that sermon to a close, remember I pointed out the four warnings, and they all center on the judgment that will come when he returns. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. I hope everybody has their, their little creamer uh, device, and, and, and I'll talk about it then there as well. But, but Jesus made it clear, when he comes again, there will be a judgment, and Paul is saying that. In the presence of God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead when he returns? And, the final sort of thing that heightens this charge, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is a weighty intensification. Timothy, if he were hearing this, reading this when he got it, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining eyes wide open. Oh my goodness. I mean, Paul's had a lot to say already in this letter, but now, as he's wrapping things up, I charge you, I solemnly charge you. And again, hear, hear this being written to you. Make that application. God, God's saying, to whatever context you find yourself in, I, I have a charge for you, daughter of mine, son of mine, Soma Church, living in Sonoma County in May of 2021, coming out of coronavirus pandemic a year later and still dealing with ripples of it and, and, and all of it. I have a charge and it's a solemn charge and it's being given in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Okay, and here comes the charge then. Nine commands and we have the first five in verses two through four. The first one and the most important one Governs all of them. Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So that verse 2, that again is why often, oh, that's, that's for the preachers. Even that word preach means to herald, to announce. I'm doing that literally this morning. I'm heralding and announcing the word as we as we stand as i stand here and we we are gathered here today but again as you're in your homes as you are in your work as you are in your neighborhoods as you are with your friends you have an opportunity and i believe a calling to 
be heralds of the word of God to people in your life. It doesn't mean you should be obnoxious. It doesn't mean you need to go get a big fancy long music stand or build a wooden pulpit, you know, and <laughs> like call your neighbors over. I mean, maybe if God wants you to do that, okay, but but we need to be heralds of the gospel of the good news. And, and what he says here is the word, the word. Now, Timothy, again, we don't have time this morning, but in the whole letter, Paul's already talked to Timothy uh, about the sound teaching that, that the word is, uh, how it's the truth, how it's the faith. In chapter three, right before this passage, it's where Timothy hears those famous words that all scripture is God breathed. It comes from God. And that's the word. So, so Timothy, he knows the importance of the word and, and he's to be about preaching it, heralding it, announcing it. And I, I think we are to be about that as well. So that is the first command of this charge. The second is be ready in season and out of season. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Whether the time is favorable or not. The, the New English Bible puts it like this. Press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. The word of God is given to, to the, and the importance of it is given for us to preach, to herald, to announce in, in, in season and out. We need to be ready. There will be times when people are ready to hear it. And, and there will be times when, when they're not. Be ready to do it. And then the final three in this section, this first half, of the of, of this charge, the, the next three imperatives, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. John Stott, this is what he wrote. He said, it's almost a classification for three approaches, intellectual, moral, and emotional. For some people are tormented by doubts and they need to be convinced by arguments. Others have fallen into sin and they need to be rebuked. And yet others, again, are haunted by fears and they need to be encouraged. God's word does all this and more. We are to apply it relevantly. As we hear this charge, as we hear God's word being important for us, for life and ministry, and we have this charge to preach the word, to proclaim it, and we are ready in season and out, there's times to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort. And we need to do that, as John Stott said, relevantly. And then all five of these commands are governed by this next phrase. And really, we could sit here, and we should. Paul says, do this with complete patience and instruction. When I was reading this a couple weeks ago, that was the phrase that, that just floored me. It's one thing, okay, there's this charge to preach, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but with patience, patience. All we need is just a little patience and instruction, right? There's, there's the right way and wrong way to, to teach things, instruction, and there's, there's a place for patience. Some people aren't ready for certain things, and even though we're to, to give it, the truth of God's word, we've got to be patient. Again, parents, parents, we have been called first and foremost as the ones to instruct our children in that book. And I love that the kids are having a breakout today and it sounds like they're having a great morning. And I love that we're finally consistently 
providing at least two a month, first and third Wednesday or Sundays, these breakouts for them to have Christian ed or whatever you want to call it. But parents, I'm first in line. We have been called by God to instruct our children to, to preach the word to them, to, re, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, but with patience and instruction. Sometimes it's not the right time to, to say certain things to our kids, and, and, and there has to be instruction. We have to do it wisely and know the right way to do it. I love, so that's parents, a quick, uh, quick you know, reminder. But again, for all of us, again, let's keep coming back to this. This applies to all of us. You, you have a ministry, and in whatever that ministry is, whether it's in the church or outside the church, in your home, in your work, in your neighborhood, you, you have been called by God to, to proclaim this word in this way. And I love that, that God has been good to give us some amazing tools. Let me, let me just remind you, I think, of, of one uh, that I like to talk about a lot and quote, and we've done different things with, with him. T- Tim Keller, I think, is an amazing gift to the church in our day. Here's one reason I say that. and I, This is something I read recently. He, he, I don't know if you know this. He, he's fighting cancer. And uh, I forget the specifics, but it's been about a year. He was diagnosed with it early on in COVID a year ago. And I mean, he's toward, could be toward the end of his life. And, and it all seems to be going well, but, but he recognizes this, this could be it for him. So besides writing what seems like a book a week, it's not quite that much but he does write quite a bit. He, he puts a lot of things on social media, okay? And I have a love-hate with social media, okay? But um, certain people, and he's one of them, I do try to tune into things that he writes. And, and I love this. He said something recently, and I, I'm, I didn't have time to go back and find it, and I just thought of this late last night. But he was talking about how even in our, in our day, we, we need to see the Bible as being just amazing because on the one hand, in our day, right, we have a bunch of people that want to say that, um, you know, racial issues and and justice issues, those are the most important thing. And and so those voices are proclaimed outside of the church, in the church. And and Tim Keller says, yes, and in the New Testament church, they did and dealt with those things. Racial issues were a big deal, right? Jew and Gentile together. It was a huge deal. So there's a lot where they had to figure this stuff out. And, and the New Testament is all about inclusion and being just. So yes, that exists in the Bible, in the New Testament. But another thing that a lot of people in our day want to say is, well, we need to, we need to deal with the sexual ethic in our world. And, and we got to address what's going on in the world. Well, the Bible talks about that too. The Bible is very clear that God's intention from the beginning was one man, one woman. That is marriage. And so the Bible deals with sexual ethics and all the different nuances that come out of that. It's not about swinging one way only, swinging the other way only. The Bible deals with both things. And again, this was a part of kind of a thread he was doing. And and when he posts things and and others, there's always people that want to just, you know, fight online and, and do all that stuff. So he was kind of responding to some of the critics. But I, I love that. That book helps us see that, yes, race matters. And, and God made everyone. And everyone has value because God made everyone. That's Genesis 1. 
All humanity in the image of God has value and needs to be treated with dignity and value. And we in the church that have been brought into one new man, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, the body, no longer Jew and Gentile, but this new man in Christ, we need to fight and proclaim what the Bible says and stand against any kind of racial unjustness that that exists. Absolutely. But we also need to say, especially to the church, to God's people, that this is what God says as far as sexual ethics and other types of moral things and not neglect that. And if we will be people of the book, we, we will get to those things. We will at times need to preach the word in one area and other times preach the word in another area. So all that is just to say, I'm thankful personally that we have pastors, writers like Keller that help us not just you know, veer one direction too much or one direction too much the other way. So I'm thankful, but it's, it's not easy. And so I love, again, the place for the need of patience and instruction. So those are the first five commands in this charge. Now listen to Paul's reason, verses three and four. The key word there is the word for, F-O-R, verse three. For, this is why I'm giving this charge. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. This is why we need to proclaim and preach the word and be ready in season and out of season and reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and instruction, because there's a time coming, and it's here, when people just want to hear what they want to hear, right? We like to hear what we like to hear. I mean, that's true of all of us. Rather than wanting sound teachers, Paul says, Timothy, the Ephesians, where you are, they're going to want teachers who will scratch those itching ears with with things that they want to hear. They won't want to listen to the truth. And, And you're going to need to just continue to preach the word. Be ready in season and out. And you're going to need to reprove and rebuke and exhort. There's always going to be some new fad, some someone coming up with some new take on things. But the scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's the sacred writings that are able to save, that are able to sanctify us, that are able to reveal God to us. Church, we have to be people that hear the importance of the word of God for life and ministry. Okay. Theologians, let me just kind of go on a sort of tangent for a minute on, on the scriptures. They speak of the attributes of scripture, right? We, we, we know more about the attributes of God. He's holy and transcendent and mighty, right? The attributes of God. But, but theologians have written about the attributes of scripture. And if you can memorize the word scan, S-C-A-N, you can memorize these attributes. Just briefly, there's the sufficiency of scripture. That is, that the scriptures contain everything we need to know for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need new revelation from heaven. The scriptures are sufficient. Okay, That's what they meant by sufficiency. Then secondly, the C is clarity. That is, the saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in the scriptures and can be understood by all who have ears to hear. We don't need an official magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't challenging texts. The clarity of Scripture speaks specifically 
about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's clear. Then there's A, the authority. The last word always goes to the word of God. Who is the final authority in our life? Well, it's God, but he's revealed himself through a book, the scriptures. We must never allow any other thing, whether it's human experience, and oh, we need to hear that. We we must never let human experience or science or church councils or, or whatever, anything to take precedence over scripture. Scripture is the authority. That doesn't mean we don't have questions and we wrestle with things and okay, but but scripture has the final authority. And then the N is the necessity. Scan and now N, the necessity. God's word is necessary. General revelation, right? The heavens proclaim the glory of God. It is, while wonderful, not enough to save us. We cannot know God savingly by means of our again our experience. For our reason, we need God's word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. One, one writer who, who pastors on the East Coast, uh, Kevin DeYoung, and he's written lots of books as well lately. He says this of these four attributes. Of the four attributes of Scripture, the sufficiency one may be the one that evangelicals, that's us, Forget. And just again, by the way, evangelical means we are about the evangel, which is the gospel, the good news, and and the word of God. We are confessional. We, soma, I am, we are, we ought to be. That's what we mean by evangelical. It takes on other meanings, but it means the evangel, the good news, okay? That is the one DeYoung believes that we tend to forget, the sufficiency one. If the authority is the liberal problem, clarity, the postmodern problem, and necessity, the problem for atheists and agnostics, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. We can say all the right things about the Bible and even read it regularly, but when life gets difficult or a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelation, a new experience to bring us closer to God. We We feel rather ho-hum about the New Testament's description of heaven, but we are mesmerized by the accounts of a school-aged child who claims to have gone there and back. From magazine articles about my conversion with God to best-selling books where God is depicted as giving special, private communications, we can easily operate as if the Bible were not enough. If we could only have something more than the Scriptures, then we would be really close to Jesus and know his love for us. So that's obviously his opinion of where evangelicals of those four attributes can veer off, and he thinks it has to do with sufficiency. But the Bible is all of that. It is sufficient. It is, it is enough for knowledge of salvation. It is clear that Jesus Christ is the only way. It is our authority, and it is necessary. And again, in this charge, we have to be people that preach the word, that are ready in season and out of season, that reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Yes, with patience and instruction. The final part of this charge now comes in four more commands in verse five. Quickly here. Paul says to Timothy and to us, God says to us, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, 
fulfill your ministry. There's the final four imperatives or commands. Let me just briefly touch on these. To be sober-minded means to keep our head in all situations. That's how the NIV translates it. We, we need to not be intoxicated by other things, but, but sober-minded, level-headed. Okay, that's a command. We need to endure suffering and endure trials. And if we are people of the book, if, if we say that we believe in the sufficiency and authority and the necessity and the clarity of that book, we will face persecution. The world just thinks that's ridiculous. How can a book written over 2,000 years ago and more be, be authoritative in your life? We, we will have to deal with suffering. And then do the work of an evangelist. I used to think as, as a young Christian, oh good, that doesn't apply to me because I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. So that's for Billy Graham and you know those types. I wish it was that easy. To do the work of an evangelist simply means work on telling others the good news. That's, that's the work of an evangelist. I, if that's the definition, which I, it is, that's me, that's you. Work at telling others the good news. It takes work. Do the work. Tell other people about Jesus. And then fulfill your ministry. Even if people forsake what, what Paul was saying to Timothy for other teachers, Paul says, Timothy, fulfill what God's called you to do. Fulfill your ministry. And again, as I've said at the beginning in this message, this is about the scriptures being um, what we need and the importance of them for life and ministry, and they go together. So fulfill your ministry. Whatever it is, fulfill it. That's a charge Paul gives to us, all under, though, the use of the scriptures. And then he gives the for reason here in verse 6. Why? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He, he knows he's near death. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's not say that yet. <laughs> I'm not ready to say that. I'd much rather say I am fighting the good fight. It's active. I am running this race, even though I always liked sprinting better than long distance. I am keeping the faith, right? We're not ready to... To say like Paul, like I'm about ready to go. And then he says, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you can look, if you have a Bible or you can swipe, notice how that sounds very similar to verse 1. That's how he started, right? He spoke about Jesus judging and, and that, that day and his appearing, right? And, and why he's giving this charge, this solemn charge. And now having given the charge, these nine commands, he says, it's coming for me. The, the crown of righteousness, and we won't get into this morning. Is that a literal crown? What is he speaking of? We can have coffee and talk about that another time. The point is he knows he's about to be with Jesus Three questions just for us to chew on and maybe take with us. How will you preach the word? How will you use the scriptures and the, and the importance of them in your ministry, in your life, your life and ministry? How will you proclaim the word? That, that first one kind of governs all of them. It, it's all about the word of God being done in these ways. Another question to consider, do you, do you have those itchy, tickly ears? Are you finding yourself 
you know, wanting other ideas or being drawn to other ideas? What are you doing with that if you do? And finally, the, the, the prospect of Jesus' return, how does, how does that make you feel? The fact that he's coming one day could be today. Well, that, that leads me then now into our time of communion, the fellowship that we have together with the Lord. And, and again, it's worth remembering why we use that word sometimes, communion. It means fellowship. And because of the communion we have with God through Christ and his body and blood, the work on the cross, that then unites us as brothers and sisters to have fellowship with one another, which is also why we like to generally take and and eat the elements uh, together because it's a family meal and we like to, to drink together as well. So John 3, 16 and 17, I mentioned these last week actually too. You know John 3, 16, most of us do. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his special son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son the first time, into the world to condemn or judge, but that the world might be saved. So Jesus came that first time, the first advent, not to judge, but to save, to give himself through his perfect, obedient life and then ultimately his sacrifice. But as we've read today, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, he is coming. There's a day appointed when he will return to judge the living and the dead. We, as the church, are to be ready. We're to be uh, like, like a bride waiting for her groom and, and ready to meet him when he comes. That means we are dealing with things as we need to, confessing our sins to one another, confessing our sin to the Lord, making sure the fellowship is restored. We, we, are, we are making ourselves ready all the while he's the one at work in us. And so the communion elements, they, they remind us So Paul wrote that he received from the Lord what he also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. So let's just spend a few moments quietly in prayer. And then we will, on my instruction, eat together. And then on my instruction, we'll drink together. And as we prepare to do that, I would ask you, respond to Second Timothy 4 in your own spirit. God's given us the scriptures, and they are important for life and ministry. And we are to be about these nine commands of the word of God in our ministry in life, wherever and whatever that looks like. What do you need to do in response to that today? Maybe start there, but talk to the Lord about how much you're thankful for him loving us by sending Jesus. Talk to him about maybe areas you need to confess, but just have a few moments quietly with the Lord. Thank you.
as one soma, one body, part of the larger soma, the larger body. Let's drink together. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the communion, the fellowship that we have with you because of the Lord Jesus, and therefore the communion we have with one another. Thank you for this church family, the greatest family in the world. No, we're not perfect. We are far from it. But you are at work in us. You are using your word to make us more like Jesus. May we live submitted to you through the scriptures and be people about this solemn charge in our lives, our homes, our church, our city and county. Thank you for the scriptures and that they are given to us for life and ministry. In Jesus' name.